if we do a great job of the soil and feeding the system good, healthy, biological nutrient, we can change the food's appearance, flavour, shelf life, but be a food for us, not just a thing that we've just chewed through and didn't get any satisfaction. Because you know, when you eat something really good, it's wow, that gives you a real buzz. Welcome to this podcast series, Biodynamic Farmers and Gardeners in Australia. The series was commissioned by Biodynamic Agriculture Australia Limited and produced by Householders Options to Protect the Environment, Hope Incorporated Australia. Biodynamic Agriculture Australia Limited is a not-for-profit company located in Bellingen, New South Wales. It has been making and supplying biodynamic preparations as well as supporting biodynamic growing in Australia for over 30 years. Biodynamic Agriculture Australia Limited values biodynamics as a practical and holistic technique that is able to regenerate soil, supercharge organic growing, restore biodiversity and work with Mother Nature. The podcast series was produced on and adjacent to the traditional lands of the Jarawa, Guyabal, Yugara and Waka Waka First Nations peoples of the surrounding region. We pay respect to the past, present and emerging leaders of all First Nation Australians in this country and celebrate the unique contributions their cultures make to this place. And in the context of this podcast series, particularly those contributions involving Indigenous respect for and stewardship of the nature of Australia, with its attendant spiritual and practical care for country, the sovereignty of which was never ceded. Hello. My name is Andrew Nicholson and I am the producer of the Biodynamic Farmers and Gardeners in Australia podcast series. My guest on this episode of the series, Kim Green, is a sixth generation fruit grower from Lenswood near Adelaide in South Australia. Kim and his brother Peter run Elamata orchards there which are intensively planted with multiple modern varieties of organic and biodynamic apples and cherries. This was not always the case and Elamata orchards was once standard commercial orchard, farmed chemically for many decades. The story of the biodynamic transformation the orchards have undergone is told by Kim in this interview. And a written account of Kim's biodynamic growing experiences are also contained in an associated profile booklet of all of the guests interviewed for this podcast series. So a very warm welcome, Kim, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, I'm glad to be here and share some, hopefully, wisdom. I'm, I'm sure you will share loads of wisdom. And Kim, let's start the conversation uh, about your journey into biodynamic growing and the work in your orchards through you giving us a fuller self-introduction. So can you describe, you know, the, ba- the background characteristics of your farm down there at Lenswood? Um, give us some idea about its location, its size, uh, the landscape characteristics and of course most importantly also the work you undertake on that property oh that's a handful um as you mentioned earlier we're sixth generation and we've been here a long time we're a bit hard to shift we uh we're in two valleys here in in adelaide hills Uh, it's mostly stringy bark forest the old timers went here because a they got jobs cutting the the timber down but that timber in that country was on deep soil. So they chose that country because uh, once they started putting in orchards, it didn't need 
so much irrigation or it had high organic matter and it wasn't as warm and dry as we go over the next hill. So we've got four blocks here. They're only small blocks, 12 hectares. Uh, it's a mixed terrain, not big, long, rolling hills, but short, angular bits. We've got some alluvial flats. We've got some nice rolling country, and then we've got quite a lot of steep country. And generally the steeper country, if you're lucky, it's uh, not that steep. We can do it uh, with the tractors now. The old the ancestors used to do it all with prong hoe and everything was dug by hand. They actually liked the steep country. But the steep country's got beautiful soil. Uh, seems to be a bit more bottomless and not even though it's not eroded so much, it grows really good stuff. Um, but the, the steeper slopes, creek lines, corners have got a lot of forest on it still. So it gives a good contrast to the valley rather than just big, long uh, runs of land with nothing on it, with no like big trees. It's still got a lot of forest, and it's like third-generation forest. So it's all been cut down in the past. Um, we grow apples and cherries, and they're pretty tough to grow. Uh, they need to be perfect. The consumer wants perfect fruit. They want organic, but it can't have caterpillars in it, codlin moth. It can't have black spot. So I remember Peter Proctor saying, you know, you're growing a very tough crop, so you've got to have some help. So we use a bit of uh, copper and sulphur with that. But, yeah, we, we grow the fruit, we pack the fruit, we store the fruit, uh, we sell the cherries direct and the apples go through another uh, shed and he sends them all over Australia. Thank you so much, um, Kim, for setting the scene. You know, lovely pen picture there of what sounds like a very diverse um, property in terms of landscape, uh, vegetation, et cetera, et cetera. So let's, having now set that scene, let's come to the sort of nub, I suppose, of of this interview and, and start to talk about biodynamics specifically. And you know, from your own perspective, in 2023, how would you describe biodynamics? What are some of the basic principles and benefits of biodynamic methods as they apply to your type of orchard work? Biodynamics, yes, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, I got advice from a chemical physicist once because we thought this was all pie-in-the-sky stuff. And he said, no, no. He said the uh, the preparations are mostly medicinal herbs that have certain properties, and they're put in animal parts, and he said that's biology. So you're, you're marrying up biology with herbs and you get something bigger than the, the parts of the two. And then you uh, you stir it. And he said that's putting oxygen into it, into the liquid. And oxygen is highly paramagnetic. So, you, so you're basically putting a charge to that water and you spread it out on the on you, dates, dates being could be moon opposite Saturn, et cetera. There, there's a process they determine what's the optimum date. And he said, well, look what the moon patterns do to the tides. You can have a high tide, a king tide. So he said, if you can, marry up your application with um, with the dates because you get the full benefit. Sometimes it's not always easy to putting it out on that date because the date could be a 
my wife's birthday. It could be child's birthday. You don't get to it. So you try to do your best. And I've gone now to not stressing out to the date. That gives me a guide of close close enough. I mightn't get the full benefit. So I go when my gut feel says I'm ready to go. It suits me to do it tomorrow. Today's, say, the date, and it's blowing a gale out there, and it's 31. Well, tomorrow it's cooled off, and the, and the uh, application will be a lot more appreciated and a bit more beneficial. So it's not set in stone. But I remember another uh, biodynamic teacher said, you know, a lot of people fail in biodynamics mostly because they didn't put it out. They got that stressed out with the date and doing everything proper. They never applied it. So the dates are something to go by. Uh, time and practice will get you better with your date application, but most fail because they don't apply it. So the other thing about biodynamics, some of the best farms in Australia are biodynamic and some of the worst farms are biodynamic. Mm, so that, it's a bit like kicking sand in your face. You know, you're doing biodynamics. Yeah, but I've seen the worst farms. So biodynamic is part of good farming practices. So things like getting your soil tested and, and the right sort of tests. So we use um, EAL test out of Lismore, and they do a total as well as an available. So you might it mightn't be available, but it's in the total. So it's there. You just got to make it available, and that can be done through biology. Um, so knowing what you're you're weak in, we also high mag soils here, so that's a bit of a limiting factor. But if we know uh, that it is limiting, we can do things to help. Uh, biodynamics also works with cover crops, keeping your ground covered at all time. Now the big trend nowadays is mixed species cover crops, so it's a bit like having steak for tea now, probably a lot of these people are vegetarian and they might like just steak for tea but you want a bit more than steak you know you want roast potato and carrot and cauliflower and so the cover crops just putting out say oats it can be enhanced by putting veg with it um, lots of different species so now they're finding that the mixed species gives you a variety of minerals and biology uh, food coming to the farm um, and the big thing was keeping soil covered all the time so there was some work done in Shepparton because conventionally when we looked at uh, under tree we used to herbicide it and they did some annual ryegrass and they found that they grew the ryegrass they herbicided it off compared to the control which was herbicide the whole time and it was something like 12 degrees hotter in the herbicide so the i don't know about you but i i don't like working in the uh, in any sort of hot temperature certainly if it's 10 to 12 degrees hotter than it should be uh the biology it kills that off and it's very inefficient so um so and like quite often i don't put the preps out singularly i put them with ferments so i might ferment one i, I do there's two in particular i like the ferment and that's stinging nettle and that's a bit like the mixed salad. It's got a lot of different minerals and stimulates a lot of things. And aloe vera. So I put the preps in there and uh, that does a great job. Uh, the aloe 
is interesting in that if you get a we all probably heard that, you know, you burn your hand, you go and get some aloe vera and put it on there and it cools it. So I use my aloe uh, in the summer when it's hot. So it'll cool the tree, uh, lessen the sunburn, and, you know, that's one I just dreamt up. And it's been working it's been working pretty well. Um, so we do compost. Uh, we have done chicken compost. We've done cow compost. That all helps. That gives you a base. In we put it on in autumn. Then it's got time to digest over the over the winter. So when we hit spring, it's uh, off and running. So we do a lot of sprays. We do the basic ground sprays, but we do a lot in the atmosphere. So if I'm putting out stinging net or aloe, the preps are going out. So for me, I'm sort of doing something biodynamic all the time. Maybe not deliberately. By itself, it might go in with a cover spray. It might go in with, and because I'm all certified organic, we don't have chemicals to put out. But we might, it might go in with my kelp. It might go in with my calcium. So I'm trying to uh, give the strength of the preparations to my soil and my trees continuously. Um, pest and disease is still a bit of a challenge, but. Maybe I think we're going to cover that a bit later on. Just listening to that as a lay person, and I suppose as I've come to the, these podcasts, you know, I, I'm trying to square up as as everyone makes tries to make sense of uh, new new learning. You know, so this is this uh, approach to agriculture, perhaps coming under this umbrella of this a more generic term, regenerative agriculture, an agriculture that's capable of literally regenerating soils, bring improving the health of um, biological communities in the soil and in biodiversity on top of the soil, that type of thing. I've heard there are a number of different themes, you know, of, of similarities, overlaps with conventional uh, agriculture, but then obviously considerable differences. I mean, for instance, you talked about the, the physical science underpinning, you know, the chemistry and physics underpinning the um, assessment of soil biology that goes on within your that biodynamic approach. But then you came to describe some very different practices you know that much uh, greater focus on the cycles of nature the, you know the calendar timings and all that and and of course the preparations which i, I think biodynamics is particularly well known for so staying with this as a sort of comparative theme that i'm sort of putting forward i suppose now is to ask you this next question and you've started to answer it but let's let's go into it in more detail how do some of those biodynamic practice principles you've described contrast to more conventional growing methods in your area of fruit growing expertise for instance i know that farm that you're on there alamata orchards at one time in the past did have a much more traditional chemical approach to production so anything you have to say about you know comparison contrast to other conventional forms of agriculture so when i mention on sixth generation the habit is well well ingrained in me of really chemical farming. I had I farmed with my dad my whole life and, and grandpa, and they scare the bejesus out of you that if things if you fail, it fails big time. So if black spot gets in. Yeah, you haven't got it for five minutes. It's in your crop, and you can lose your whole crop. It's such a deadly 
disease, and we really are struggling with that uh, biodynamically as well. But chemical farming is about killing. It's killing everything. It's killing the disease. It's killing the insects, not only the bad insects, but the good insects. It's killing the soil, the herbicides. And I smile, uh, maybe it's a sarcastic smile as I drive around the district now, that uh, my fellow chemical farmers have under the tree permanently bare all year. So, hey, we just mentioned that it can be 12 to 15 degrees hotter in summer, but there's no life, no roots growing on that strip to allow the water to go down. They've actually, a lot of places have got moss and lichen growing on that strip now. Uh, yeah, that's covered the soil, but it's, um, they're low succession plants. It's saying that the soil's nearly buggered, but it's not quite. Um, so, I have grass. My dad would turn in his grave if he saw the amount of grass I have under my tree. But, you know, the, the grass is photosynthesizing. It's putting exudates down into that soil, feeding the biology, and the biology in turn feed my tree. Yes, I'd like to have it a bit shorter. Sometimes it is quite short, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's 18 inches high. But what I've noticed as we've got off that treadmill of killing and identified a few things, that, uh, and I know a lot of people, weeds are paramount in their cleanliness of their farm. You know, weeds, what do you do with the weeds? Well, I don't worry. Actually, I get really upset if I see it bare. And as we've developed the biodynamics with some other practices, the weeds are telling us there's a problem with the soil. So just this last winter, I tried to dig into the memory of the weeds that we've had. And weeds is really just a plant that's growing that we didn't like. And I really had to struggle trying to remember some of the weeds that were really quite prevalent in our days gone by. As we've sweetened and lifted the health of our soil, a lot of those weeds are gone. The, the conditions don't suit them. And there's a really good book called When Weeds Talk by an American, Jay McCannon, I think, and out of the 300 weeds, 95% of them grew in low to very low calcium, low to very low phosphorus, low fungi, and quite often high magnesium soil. So as we herbicide, getting rid of the fungi, we're encouraging a lot of these weeds. So I remember in 2006 when I did my first workshop, actually we had Salvation Jane in a paddock for 40 years. So I dug up a 200-litre drum, fermented it with the preps, and it was all that was my, my first stint at it, and uh, I sprayed that out three months later. And I thought, how do I spray this out? So I just put it out in the air blast spray. And, you know, as I said, this stuff was there for 40 years. Dad used to herbicide it. You know, it grows a metre high, so the trouble was he was killing trees as he's trying to herbicide. So we forgot all about it. And the next winter we were pruning, I said to Dad, oh, go over to that block and see if you can find 
see what the Jane's done. And he rode up at, with his motorbike and came back and he said, son, you've done a great job. That herbicide's worked. There's not one Salvation Jane there. I said, Dad, it didn't have any herbicide. That was in 2006. Here we are. What's that? Or 17 years later and it's gone. We've done the same with mallow. Uh, it's just that they grow in poor conditions and I think in a lot of the cases our poor conditions that we've created uh, is good, is favourable for the weeds. Um, so, yeah, the higher order. The other one I'm working, the other one is oxalis, sassops. So we're fermenting that and that actually is a lush. Do you know oxalis, Andrew? It's a... It's a yellow plant. Uh, it's full of sap, but it oxidizes. But it almost sterilizes the soil. So you have it there in early spring, and when it goes off, it sterilizes the soil, so nothing will regrow. There you're back to that bare bare ground. So I just love the the photosynthesizing of the of the plants that are doing the other thing because we're not using broad spectrum insecticides like we used to we're saving our predators so where my neighbors they come in early bloom with a laws ban that kills thrips and dimple bug uh, it sets them up for the season of all their predators are gone so they'll get woolly aphid they'll get slaters they'll get earwigs their their helpers are gone I haven't sprayed for woolly for a lot of years. I'm not getting these things. I don't even get the dimple bug because I haven't upset the process. And we are, we're seeing now ladybirds, a lot of lacewings, the spiders, the little stethorists that feed on mites. So uh, it's, it is IPM, but most thing about integrated pest management is not putting the bad guys out, not putting the bad practices or the chemicals out that upset the process. So the biodynamics have uh, given me some really good handy tools to help make a healthy system to grow healthy food. Again, I just I, I just I love that that set, set of anecdotes there. Just a couple of things I've taken from that. Fascinating to hear the generational chi- change of mindset. You've been on that property for generations, you know, your family the way that mindset's changed from, you know, blitzing stuff with, for instance, herbicide to using, the, you know, natural plant sort of sprays, uh, you know, green manures, composts and stuff like that to overcome the problem. Seeing weeds not as just out and out pests, but as biomarkers, bioindicators of soil health. Again, I just some of that stuff that's starting to come across to me through biodynamics, you know, that just that closer observation and focus of the natural cycles of nature and working with them as opposed to trying to dominate them. But also just that, almost that theme of the cure being worse than the disease in terms of conventional processes mm. of spraying everything mm. into the ground. I mean, it's counterproductive, as you've just described there in several several times. Let's now change uh, tack slightly as we go through this interview. Let's go back in time now. I think it's always interesting to hear something of the human story behind the innovative people such as yourself who are helping progress new ways of doing things. What were their early influences, their drives, their what are their drives, their passions, their challenges, that sort of thing. So, Kim, you know, in the, in the field of biodynamics uh, and your work down at the orchards there, looking back, how did you first become involved with biodynamic orchard growing in the first place? 
Yeah, so we're going back into the, say, 20, the turn of the century. Um, I went to a, a one-day workshop with Elaine Ingham up the Barossa, just on soil biology. I said to Dad, I want to go up and, you know, see a bit more about the worms. And, you know, she took us into the bacteria and the fungi and the protozoa, compost and compost tea. And at that time, I thought that was all knitted jumpers and dreadlocks. That was the hippie stuff. And anyway, she explained it. And I came home and talked to Dad because, you know, Dad's a great mentors and guides. And I said to Dad, what was the, the land like here when you first came home? He said, well, we had three acres of land that they dug for veg. And they dug, they did a lot of digging, and they would clear a bit, and that timber was worth money. So they would then plant swedes and turnips. No herbicide, no manure, no weeds. It had high organic matter, high humus. And as they dug and aerated that and burnt it off, they lost the humus. Then they would move to another block. So Elaine said, you know, you're just trying to get back to where you were at the start. And they said, oh, that's, that's really comfortable. We can go there. And the next year I did a, an Elaine Ingham with Arden Anderson. So Elaine was all about compost and practical stuff. And Arden was into science and physics, chemistry. I don't know about you, but I wasn't a great fan of that at school. I loved biology, but I didn't like chemistry and physics because it's not black and white. If you looked at the Mulder's chart, oh, my God, but everything affects everything else. So they told us, well, he, Arden told us that we're farming poorly with chemicals and you need to lift your game, and then he went home. So I wandered around for three or four years asking, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And, you know, you'd always get to your reseller. That's selling your chemical. I talked to my neighbours who are using chemicals, and it was really tough, really tough, because I knew we had to do better, um, but what was better? Anyway, I'd heard of a workshop of, uh, of biodynamics over at Paris Creek at, uh, near Meadow, so I went for that two or three days it was, and, well, that opened my eyes on what was possible. And that really opened my eyes. Really, that's a key thing, to open my eyes rather than asking the neighbour. So I got in touch with with those people, and Cheryl Kemp came and did personal visits and helped me, Hugh Lovell. Um, they were fantastic. But it, as I go back to opening my eyes, so I, I started reading a lot of on this subject, and I came across a guy, well, two guys actually. One was Francois Chabousse. He was a French scientist that did a huge amount of uh, science and research in the 80s in France on why do we have pests and disease. And we were lucky that he did research with apples, cherries, vines, and he found that the more you use a chemical the more prone that plant was to pests and disease i refer it it gives them constipation give them a blockage so say nitrate comes up through the plant converts whatever but goes into enzymes and proteins and all that but it's bogged it's a constriction of that 
movement. But if you use, say, copper and sulfur natural products, it flowed through. The plant could um, work happily and naturally. But in any interference with its herbicide, insecticide, fungicide, all upset the plant's metabolism. And he highlighted how important the trace elements are. So along that, that's where I do a lot of trace element applications and try to stimulate the trace elements. That was other. And there's, a, there's another, uh, Christopher Bird. Oh, I've just got the books here, Secrets of the Soil by Peter Tompkins and Christopher Bird, and they talk a bit, a bit about a journey from what farmers are doing to more progressively, uh, say, organic and then to biodynamic with Podolinsky. And that's easy reading and just, oh, I can do that, rather than a scientific paper on biodynamics where the big words leave, just leave you behind. And the other one is a biodynamic manual by Pierre Maison out of France, and that's a really good resource to a lot of practical stuff on how to do it, uh, whereas you can read um, Steiner's agricultural course, and I just didn't understand that most of that. So I just, because I'm probably well-grounded, I tend to go for more of the practical stuff as I grow and learn the more spiritual stuff. Well, Kim, thank you so much for that great section. That was really interesting. You, you gave us, for instance, um, almost a mini library of resources that you used there, you tapped into across your learning journey in biodynamics, and we'll put some links in the show notes to any of that material that might be referenced online. It might be some, some of it might be available or could be uh, purchased in. Um, I just also, I was really fascinated to hear, you know, something of that early experience for you, almost an isolation type experience where you were, in the early days, you were trying to find, you know, um, sources of information, other people that were involved in the biodynamic field, um, but it wasn't quite on the radar in your neck of the woods. But then you found this community of interest, you know, in biodynamic education and practice, and you managed to tap into that and were supported by that. And I think the great news that I've, I've come across, uh, the, my understanding is that in 2023, um, we now just have a much, much more developed national network of biodynamic and other regenerative growing practice uh, organisations and people working on the land. So it just seems to be uh, a much more uh, a sort of full and comprehensive community of growers than, than existed perhaps even 20 years ago. And, of course, we have organisations such as Biodynamic Agriculture Australia who's uh, supported this podcast uh, series that people can go to for information, trainings, etc. So, look, let's now um, switch focus again and come back to the present at, in 2023. And you started telling us about this, but uh, let's focus in, in more detail about those biodynamic approaches, methods, techniques you use on your orchards and the beneficial impacts they have on the landscape, the soil, the animals and plants on the property. So and and also I think you've mentioned this as well uh, and beneficial impacts on you personally uh, at a personal level. I've heard this from other guests as well. The the benefit of growing biodynamically as a a person on the land. So can you tell us some more about that? Yes, it is a big subject. Uh, as a chemical farmer, I wanted a recipe, and the agronomist can give you a recipe. And with biodynamics, it's not necessarily a, a recipe and I found that very difficult 
Cheryl, Cheryl Kemp and Hugh Lovell certainly helped along the way. It's, you had to have another source of advice and that source, which was a surprise, was me. And they taught us to douse. Douse can be tuning into our knowledge. Some people use a wire, some use a uh, bobbin or a pendulum, some use uh, rubbing their fingers. Basically, it's muscle testing in different avenues. And I always remember Hugh saying, you know, we've got the mobile phone. I don't know about you, Andrew, but do you understand your mobile phone, how that works? Hell, I don't. How does a computer work? I don't know. He said, well, don't get bothered on dousing on how it works. It works. So just go with it. Go with the flow. So we, I used um, muscle testing, dousing as a daily thing to work out what's the ideal time to do a lot of things. And look, the Biodynamic Agriculture Australia put out a great biodynamic handbook with all the resources and knowledge in there, and you just got to work it with your crop. So the basis is composted cow manure. Uh, in as I said in uh, May here, after the crop is off and it's got the preps, it's been there digesting and that gets spread on the farm. And I'm only putting out a ton of hectare. I hear people putting out twenty ton of stuff. Hell, they smoke. You know, it's way too much. It's only seed material to feed the biology. It's more about feeding the biology rather than putting on organic matter. Uh, we started, we've done a lot of tree paste, biodynamic tree paste. We're making a slurry cow manure and a few other things and you paste it with like a thick paintbrush on the trunks. No, we only started that once. Gave that away as a bad joke. You know, because the instructors are giving that advice, but the instructors had five trees. I've got 60,000 trees. Holy smoke, how am I ever going to get around that? So I doused on it and uh, came up with a way of make it into a slurry and put it in my sprayer, my air blast sprayer, orchard sprayer, and I sprayed that out. And it would just give a coating. and. Just recently, like this is my first year of doing it, is I came across, or not, I reread the biodynamic treatment of fruit trees and berries and shrubs by Aaron Reed, Aaron Freed Pfeiffer, who was a understudy to Steiner, and he came up with with a thing called tree wash, and that tree wash is BD five hundred with equisetum. And if you haven't got much moss or disease, you can just spray this out in the in the autumn, at, in autumn with the leaves that come off, or in early spring. And it covers all parts of the tree to revitalise them, get the cambium and the sap going. So, and I spoke to the office about this, and they hadn't heard of it because they're not tree croppers. So maybe a cow farmer wouldn't have seen it either, but as a tree cropper, I see things that jump out at me to do with trees. So we found that was a really big benefit. I also do what I call winter ground sprays with the biodynamic preps in them. Uh, 
and whatever's lacking. It could be manganese, it could be silica, could be I put calcium with it, and I spray that on the ground usually in May, June, July, or May, June, and August. I try to get it on four times a year to to feed the biology to feed my trees. And that's been really good. I know some of the vignerons have put it on, uh, spray their 500 out twice a year. Uh, it might be okay for them, but it has pretty intense. So we uh, put a, quite a lot of effort into our biodynamic sprays. Um, and then I do spolia sprays of biodynamics and, and uh, the ferments. And then I do another biodynamic soil spray in spring. Just trying to get the the system running, digesting. Um, why I say that in spring? Because I've got all my leaves that have come off the trees, and it's interesting. As I've done more silica sprays on the tree, the leaves are stronger, thicker, and they don't break out, break down anywhere near like they used to. They used to be paper thin before. Now they're like cardboard. So, and that's where a lot of disease comes from those leaves. So I try to uh, get them to digest, get the biology digesting them. Um, one, uh, I went to a workshop with the apple industry a few years ago, and and uh, this is a, a besides biodynamic, but it said it was benchmarking industries, and they benchmarked, I think it was a sugarcane industry. And they found that the guy that grew the most sugarcane, the most tonnage, wasn't the most profitable. He was putting that much effort into getting the most tons. He'd gone past that equilibrium. Anyway, they put these growers, these other growers in a room and said, you know, guys, you know why you're here? No, you're the top 10 in the industry, the top 10 profit makers. And, uh, oh, so why, why do you think you're making a profit? Anyway, they kicked it around. And anyway, the, the, the amazing thing that they came up with, they did things on time compared to the guys out there that were maybe had the cost, but they didn't do it on time to get the full result. So after that workshop, I do try to do things on a lot more timely manner. So. In my introduction, I said spray when you can, but if I can spray on that date, you get the full benefit for your cost. So it's no good saying, oh, I should have done it last week or should have done it, should have, uh, do it. You know, we've got to be more, we've got to be better on timeliness. I hate to see people that are muckers. You know, that doesn't have a good role in good farming. Good farmers are on time. And... Hugh Lovell taught, taught us a lot. He, he was American and he came out to help farmers and he did uh, generally once a year a six-day workshop. It's a live-in. Often it was in the rainforest and, and it's farmers from all over Australia, from cows to cropping to there's only two of us that grew trees and it, it was fantastic. Like-minded people, just chewing the fat and you taught us a lot of things, and one of the things he said was observation is the basis of an intelligence. And he'd put us through these routines that, you know, we all do the room, you know, you walk in the room and you do a quick look over and you haven't seen anything. Now go back and have another look. And he said, 
when you're out on the farm, look, observe, turn off the radio, Andrew, turn off the radio so you don't listen to this commentator yapping in your ears. You're out there looking, and in recent years, like the trees will tell me more about what they want or what I need to be doing rather than listening to the latest music or the latest bad stuff on the news. And he always said that biodynamic brought organisation to the farm. So it's a bit like having a factory, you're producing stuff and all the workers are there, but it needs management. It needs organisation. So he said if if you're short in calcium, biodynamics will struggle to organise everything because it hasn't got the full component of stuff to work with. So by turning that radio off, I've got built a, uh, we're trying to build a connection with my farm and uh, that, that the muscle testing is important. I remember going to a workshop with Adam Collins and he brought that human feeling consciousness to biodynamics. And I had no idea that that was part of biodynamics. So, and that, that takes a while to develop. Some people have it straight away. You said something before about um, industry. My industry, we're in, we're a tight industry. And how are you going, Kim? How's biodynamics? How's organics? That's not in their vocabulary. They they're not interested in what you're doing because they might have to change. So people that are looking to go into biodynamics don't expect expect support support from your fellow neighbour because it's all foreign to them and they don't want to know. So you really do need a family, family of biodynamic people, of support, and that can be through the office, it can be through workshops, network that because that's where your support's going to come from. It won't come from, quite often it won't come from your family because they think this is mixing up cow manure and spreading that out and you know, it's all funny stuff and I don't like to say I don't like to say it's practice we hear yeah, it's biodynamic practice so do fo- footballers go through their whole career just practicing they want game day they want to see where all that practice that they've done comes to fruition in a good game good skills no injuries so I'm doing biodynamics I'm not practising. I'm doing biodynamics. Fantastic philosophy there. I, I, again, it just goes to some of those bigger picture principles that are started to come across to me as I interview these various guests. I mean, they're all very different in their work, what they're working on in terms of their properties, uh, their products. But some of these basic principles of close observation, you know, fine tuning your methods, uh, not one size fits all, just stuck in a rut doing the same old, same old approach all the time constantly observing the consequences of your work at any one time and fine-tuning it. You mentioned that anecdote there, fine-tuning a training that you'd received, um, you know, using the dowsing process as a way of being able to calibrate, fine-tune, if I understand it correctly, you know, your approach <clears throat> to some of the preparation work and other work within the, the biodynamic methods. Look, and also, you know, you're hinting at that, I suppose, any innovator, any change agent, any um person coming into a, a new field trying to get new ideas up comes up against uh, resistance at times other people you know don't see the value of what they're doing the, the value the need to find a community of interest a community of support 
And as I said before, that is now seemingly a much easier thing to tap into. There, there are networks of uh, biodynamic growers everywhere across the country. There are the organisations, um, as we've mentioned, which, again, we'll put into the show notes. But just staying with some aspects of that bigger picture stuff there, you're talking about, <clears throat> you know, almost an emotional side to the work in addition to the just the thinking through the the cleverness the intelligence the close observation there's also this hands heart head aspect to biodynamics and it sort of i suppose resonates with this idea of this bigger picture spiritual and cosmic elements that have actually that i, I my sense is makes biodynamics unique within the regenerative agriculture space and some of that stuff goes back, and we've already mentioned the sort of uh, founding guru of uh, biodynamics at one level, Rudolf Steiner, 1920s. But I, I know that you're a person, as with other guests that I've talked to, who, you know, quite understandably, after 100 years, have adapted some of this stuff. We're talking about 2023 now, not 1923. So the interesting thing is, how does this stuff get adapted? But also, how is it hung on to in terms of basic principles? So the question, that, which I am finally getting to, Kim, here, is what has been your experience of this more spiritual aspect, spiritual cosmic aspect of biodynamics, its working philosophy? How have you personally approached those aspects and incorporated them into your growing strategies? Yes, so Steiner, Rudolf Steiner, is a larger-than-life person, and he's so gifted in what he developed. And then he gave it to his teachings to the disciples, I want a better word to go go forth, young man, and see how you go, learn. And uh, but we always go back to Steiner. I think like you can't just erase him. He's he's such a profound figure. Now some some people are well read on Steiner. They've they've had dedication and and read all his work. Why struggle? I've read the agricultural courses two or three times and I'm no no wiser. So I just get on with the job. I, I, I just have gone forth. And in some ways we have groups that have evolved and then in some we still have the people that are fundamentally doing what he was doing you know, nearly 100 years ago. And I often say some, in some terms Steiner would be disappointed if we were just sticking to his advice. We haven't grown ourselves. Um, I know we've had controversy in biodynamics when people use other things, and those other things at the time were like stirring machines, uh, for want of a better word. Now, field broadcasters, a lot of that stuff, and, you know, that's taboo to a lot of people. But to a lot of people, I can't get over my farm because it's so big with a bucket, twenty, no, 10-litre bucket, flicking it out with a brush. Now I've got to use another method. And everybody's finding their own way on their own farm to apply the preparations or the concepts of the whole thing. And so there's no right or wrong way. And I found that hard. I thought it was one way or the highway. But there's no right or wrong way. As long as the preps are getting out in in its way. and as Adam Collins said years ago, that there is a connection sort of can develop. And I remember doing one of Hugh's workshops up in Mossman, far north Queensland, with the group, and uh, we had the day off. It was Wednesday. 
was Bowles bingo day. So we got kicked out and four of us went up into the rainforest and there's an Aboriginal colony there. I don't know if that's quite the terminology, it might be First Nations. Uh, I stand corrected on what the right terminology is, but they were camp. That's their place. And we walked up the gorge. And look, I'm struggling now. I can still the energy. Yeah, you know, it was like it had me by the throat. And Jeff Bassett, he's quite intuitive. He said, Tim, take your hat off. Let the energy flow through you. That was the first time I'd ever experienced, I suppose, because we, we were in the workshop and we were zoned in and this thing was it was just so powerful that day, so powerful. And Jeff would give an interpretation of what he thought we were seeing and feeling. And Anyway, I'm leading the, leading the way up the, the walk and I came to this little, I'll call it a glade. It's not a, a term that we Australians would use, but it was a, there was this massive big rainforest tree with the sun shining through the forest onto it, this dappled light, but it was just just bloody awesome. I was overcome with uh, the energy that was there and the effect it had on me. And it was probably like a I felt so guilty that Lenswood was like this area once. And we had these massive trees once, and they've been removed. And, you know, as you just said, it's quite an emotional thing. And Anyway, Jeff said, look, you, got to, you, you can't blame yourself, but you note that this was what the country was like and man has destroyed it, uh, not willingly, well, maybe willingly to make a living and uh, make dollars and all that, but we haven't appreciated the, the the mother trees or the grandmother trees. And I was, I was talking to a lady the other day that helping me on the spiritual side now, and, and and I've sort of mentally gone around the district trying to find trees that I could be my mother tree, my guidance tree. She said, "Go back there, and I can still connect with that tree to help guide." Guide me. Wow. You know, as you, you know, and that was 10 years ago, maybe longer, and it's still having that profound effect on me. So biodynamics has changed me into a sens- sensitive new, <laughs> for want of a better word, a sensitive new age guy, but in a nice, nice way. There's Maybe it's the feminine side of me coming out, but, um, uh, yeah, it was... Wow. So that sensitive pit or – and what I work now is with gut feel, and it's a bit like playing a piano. How many of us can just sit down and play a piano? Hey, you need an instrument. You need music. Quite often you need a teacher, and you've got to have a bit of, a, bit of an idea. So gut feel, intuition is a bit the same. You've got to practice it. You got to learn the feel, and and it's through your heart. And you know, I was a heartless person, but now I've been able to draw my feelings, my intuition through my heart. Because one of the people said, "You know, your brain lies to you, but your heart is true." So you you work through your heart. So that's objectively a bit hard to do. 
Right, we're going to fill up the spray with a five-litre container with three litres of fish. And I'll just put it under the tap, three litres, out she goes. I don't look. I try to get that three litres resonating in my heart. That's a bit of practice for me. You know, or you're weighing out some calcium. I want seven kilos. Yeah, seven before I look at the scale. And you see the good chefs. I will have, you know, we're going to put out three teaspoons, but we all measure the teaspoons. They don't. They just intuitively know. So that takes work. Um, so, and it's, as I said before, it's got to suit you and your farm, your style, not the agronomist, not the neighbour. They don't know my financial terms. They don't know my labour availability. They don't know all that. Um, so it's really got to suit us and our farm because she always talks about the farm as an individual entity, that we're a critical part of that, critical part of that, whereas, say, a chemical farmer, it's just the farm, what we can get out of it, and we're not actually connected with that. So, uh, yeah, so and I've adapted. The other thing was my preps go into my spray tank and I'll stir for maybe a minute, put it in my air blast spray, which has an agitator in it, but the water goes through a, a water device, which is called a Fion. Um, they're available through the through BAA, and it just energises the water. So whenever the preps have gone out, they, they've, got, they've got energy behind them that help. Uh, what we found when we had an electric static sprayer that the droplets that are energised actually have an attraction to the plant. So this water, these droplets are attracted to the plant. There's actually a little chemical bond. So, uh, And the other thing that all, everything I've done since 2000 is documented. I have a book with everything. I remember Cheryl Kemp saying, Kim, you've got to write things down. I was, I was doing notes before that. She said, you, your change will be so subtle, so subtle. So you want to say, all right, today I've got uh, lots of capeweed. Now I can go out in the orchard at capeweed season and not see any capeweed. That has evolved. And she was very good to say, yeah, take, take notes. Takes observation, not just recording what you've done, but just observations. Now, after my first workshop uh, at Paris Creek, I went out and dug holes. Couldn't find any worms. Hell, I was disappointed. And now, if you have a the particular event, you know, you'll have all worm castings come up, not only in the orchard but on tracks. How hard are tracks? Full of worms. Uh, you dig down, there's worms everywhere. There's worms in my garden at house at my house. So uh, those things that you don't appreciate at the time, maybe how bad the farm is before you start, but once you've started, uh, things change slowly at first, and then they get momentum going. Kim, that was such a rich section there. I wouldn't even attempt to try and you know recast or, re or summarize that. But just a couple of things at random that come out of that: the the emotionality, the emotion that you you were talking about before was clear, you know, in the interview. Uh, that that sort of emotional side um, and feeling aspect of the relationship to the land. I think another speaker in this series has has suggested 
You you mentioned that anecdote of going up to Mossman, you know, the indigenous uh, community there, First Nations community. Another speaker in this series suggested that we are all indigenous in the sense that we still have stronger or weaker, depending on the personality, echoes of that older, longer-term, millennia connection to to the uh, earth and the land that we all that our ancestors had, and that we've still clearly got. You know, perhaps in terms of you said, you know, this this approach, biodynamics has, has converted you over. Perhaps it's more a question of is simply more, uh, you know, acted as a bit of a radar, as an antenna to actually um, re- re-energize that aspect, that that sort of feeling aspect of you that was always there, perhaps. It's there in all of us. And, and you see that with people outside the farming community who, yeah, they're often so perhaps branded as greenies or something like that, but a genuine love for nature, a love for trees, a love for wildlife. I mean, anyone can have it if you, if you, listen hard enough to your to your inner sort of uh sense perhaps it comes up but th- the difference is you're using that emotional side to yourself in your actual work in the actual growing practice and i, I again uh, slow changes you're you're persistent but you're observing this stuff that that uh, very strong uh, principle of observation close observation through journal keeping and the fact is it's paying off so i mean all of this stuff isn't just a sort of nice anecdote about feeling groovy uh, i i suppose because at the end of the day you can actually see the concrete results in terms of productivity on your land and and as you said that anecdote with the high the high profit margin uh, growers interestingly weren't necessarily the the you know industrial growers they were the mm. ones that were paying close attention to the cycles of nature growing at precise times you know meeting the calendar requirements they're the ones that were getting the payoff so this these this model biodynamic practice works uh as as your story demonstrates as the other guests in this series demonstrates the proof is in the pudding of the results on the ground so look that was just um, amazing right but now coming around to any any sort of innovative inspiring new approach even though it is getting benefits you hinted at this before any approach to doing stuff in a new way is going to come up against challenges and you've had some there, and you you started talking about that. So this question now, just to sort of, I suppose, frame this this beautiful, positive picture of what it, uh, biodynamics achieves, but just you know to ground it in reality, there have been challenges. So in your case, what have they been on your property? What have you had to overcome there? And are you still working to overcome some of them as you practice biodyna- biodynamic methods on your land? Yes, there's always some challenges, and uh, the big one for us is the disease black spot. It comes with a rain event, and they can be the nuclei of raindrops. So imagine how much rain we get, how many drops, and all that is showering the spores, and uh, you get it on the leaves, but more importantly, you get it on the fruit. So we have been labouring away at that for forever. And there's a fear involved. It's not like insects can walk around and trip over a bait. Spores, once they're on a leaf, you know, that leaf then spiralates for more black spot. But once on the apple, that apple doesn't make market. And I can lose the whole crop. Uh, so you do live in fear. So Peter Proctor said, look, you've got to use copper and sulphur. 
that's why I really didn't go down this certification path because copper and sulphur are supposedly really bad on the soil. Uh, but if you've got really robust biology, it doesn't it's not as bad. And I can hear people out there saying, yeah, but you're using a chemical that's, yeah, a natural chemical. That's not an excuse. That's not a cop-out. I don't want to use the stuff, but I've got to land a crop. So there's certainly some fear there. So we're working with that. Um, I'm All the time I'm looking for a biological path. But so we're trying some bacillus, some bacillus subsilis. Uh, that's man synthesised. We're trying worm juices. They're all soft and they do wash off in a rain event. So you're reapplying. You're on your... Like last year, it just rained, and like we'd have six days of rain, and I might have to spray two or three times in the rain. And the orchard was just a pigsty by the time I'd finished. And I hate doing that to the farm. Uh, a lady that I'm working with, she suggests it's the rootstock, uh, not bringing up silica from down deep to prevent to build that plant resilience. As I said before, I put a lot of trace elements on. I do a lot of biological sprays. I'm trying to empower the plant to build its own resilience and defend itself. And it's spun around back at me that I'm the weakest link, that I need to build that resilience in me first and foremost before I can help the orchard. And that's a bit hard to come to terms with. I've got to get used to that. I only learnt that yesterday. And... Uh, Ah, uh, blimey. So I've been dousing that they want sea minerals. And sea minerals is, you know, the minerals out of the sea. It's got everything in it. And she said, no, it's you need the sea minerals. So I've got to take the sea minerals in and then see if the trees want the sea minerals after, and they didn't. So because I'm connected with the farm, that we're both one of the same, so... That's taken a little bit of getting the head around. So uh, the other one is cherry splitting. So on a rain event, we can lose our crop. So we can have, and a lot of stone fruit is the same. You can have it there today, ready to pick tomorrow. It rains tonight and the crop's ruined. And I mean ruined. She just splits. The whole fruit just it's just destroyed. And then the mould gets in and rots it. So uh, that's pretty hard to take. So there's got to be something in there that through dowsing and asking silly questions, different questions, and you can follow the line and you can ask, is it a mineral thing? Is it a biology thing? Is it a spiritual thing? Is it a physical thing? Is it? And you can then start to break down what the real issue is to find the key to the problem then try and fix it that way. So uh, that that's uh, that's in my control. Where if I go and ask the agronomist, he will say, hey, "Go and put this stuff on, spend the money, and it didn't work anyway." Uh, it's not quite as that. A lot of this could be in the spiritual realm that I'm just getting it to feel a bit more comfortable in and explore because all the other ways haven't worked. So we've got to try another way. And the, I asked this morning, and the trees don't want black spot. And so we go, okay, they don't want it. 
because they're attracting it. So I've been really good with black spot this year. And then when we went out yesterday, I'm finding black spot in the orchard. So I was devastated last night. So I'm desperate to try and uh, come up with a solution because the current one's not working. The current one's in the physical world with applying copper, sulphur, bicarb, etc. So, yeah, thinking outside the square, mate. Again, Kim, uh, just... Brilliant stuff. Uh, again, I, without trying to summarise that, it would just be impossible. Um, but one thing I take out of that is that holistic principle, again, one of the key principles in biodynamics and, and regenerative agriculture generally. I mean, that idea that you, the farmer, are an integral part of the system to be considered, not just in terms of the standard idea about your physical inputs to the land, your physical efforts, but here, there you're talking about your mindset your actual psychological and personal you know, approach to working with the land, the need to perhaps reflect on that uh, and think about how that is interacting. That uh, almost a collaborative approach with your trees, You're collaborating with them around this black uh, spot problem. I mean, it's just, but again, I, from what I've read and what I understand, my growing understanding of this biodynamic approach, you know, that integral part of, plant growth, soil biology, mineral cycles, water, and the human element. But the human element, in your case, being the need to be a much more reflective, a more, uh, mind you, you, you sound pretty reflective to me as it stands, but, you know, need to be even more reflective about your own role in the, in the cycles. Um, what can I do uh, in terms of actually addressing this actual practical problem? But, you know, what is my human psychological and emotional connection to it? Is, am I getting that right? Yeah, you're getting it right. And you now, like I've listened to a lot of lectures of people and visited a lot of people, and they always talked about farming's like a, the milk stall. It's got the minerals, it's got the biology, and it's got the physical. I don't know. Have you ever sat on a milk stall without a seat? The seat is the farmer, and the farmer has all the say on where, where, and how we do it. And yet, there's no development of the farmer as we've been talking just recently of I'm the limiting factor so I've got to be on top of my game and I've got to be exposed to the right sort of people and those right those people will come when you're ready to listen and take the knowledge on you can try and force it or you can be a fake as well uh, and just want answers, but really it's got to come from your heart and you've got to develop that. And that's like the practice of uh, dowsing and stuff. Dowsing is such an important tool that it's, and it comes from me. It's, I hate to sound, sounds a bit selfish, but really it's all about me, 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 me. And I, we've been taught, you know, it's not about you. Now it is about me to, to develop skills to help all around me. Uh, rather than try and blame someone for my position or blame my dad or blame my sister or blame my wife, hey, it's me. And so I've got to, I've got to put out the right vibes and the right uh, direction to receive the right back. And I've just woken up to I've got to do a lot more work on that, both the physical and the spiritual mental side of things. So, Kim, it seems that not all in the orchard is perfectly lovely, but then we are talking here about the ups and downs of the real world of growing. And it sounds as if you've got great strategies in place to meet those challenges. I mean, you're still working through them, but, you know, they're, they're there. But look, let's 
come now finally to uh, towards the end of this stimulating interview, Kim, and shift the focus toward the future and the continued application of biodynamic methods by yourself and others, but in, in your property specifically. So the question here is, what does the future hold for you and your property? Improving what we're doing. Um, I was fortunate to get a Nuffield Farming Scholarship in 1992 and look at apple and cherry production around the world, but it made me open to other ideas and other concepts and being an ambassador for my industry and my country. And it gives you courage to say what you think and to ask others. So you can mix it with whoever. I see my role now as the combination of all those years of trial and error and work and exploring to help others that maybe showcase my farm, my orchard, so others can pick it up. So our Department of Ag is gone now. You only get exposure from resellers. Uh, we get overseas people that are on that chemical regime. So we're not getting organic or biodynamic people coming around showing you how to do it. So I always feel that if, when I practice that we can then help other growers because they have no one to take them forward on this regenerative or organic or, you know, look, people argue about organic. It's not really good food, but, you know, it can be and it can't be, like biodynamics, if you do it right uh, and you put, it's got to be nutri nutrient-dense fruit, food, and that's what we're aiming for. And when I haven't actually mentioned that, that the satisfying feedback from our customers, we have shed door sales for cherry season and the people come in and just like, wow, wow, I haven't tasted fruit like this. And they do other sheds, they do other growers, but they're all chemical guys. They come... Uh, here's pretty special stuff. And as, there was an interesting bit out of Chile, because I work a bit in Chile, on my KGB training system for cherries, and they said that uh, fruit's got to have good sugar, high sugar, but it's also got to have acidity. Acidity, it's a bit like a Shiraz. It's got acidity and sugar, whereas a Moselle is all sugar. That's from just from a layman's point of view. So the, sh the shelf life is a direct relationship to the acidity. And as we've developed our soil and our system, our acidity's lifted, and that gives you that, wow, that palate, that not just sugar, it's, it's a balance, and it's just fantastic. And my uh, colleagues in the States, they grow chemically, a variety called Rainier, which is a yellow with a red blush, small pit, and white flesh. And they pick them at 17 bricks. Well, at 17 bricks, I can't eat them. The acidity is so high. And as got up to like 23 bricks when the acidity just dropped, and then you could eat them. But you could eat these things all day rather than 10 really sweet ones. It was acidity that just balanced it, and it had that awesome skin colour of red all over. 
not mahogany like the dark cherries. It was a red cherry, and uh, it really changes changed the dynamics of that that fruit. And I just keep thinking, what happened if we do a great job of the soil and feeding the system good, healthy biological nutrient? We can change the food's appearance, flavour, shelf life, but be a food for us, not just a thing that we've just chewed through and didn't get any satisfaction. Because you know, when you eat something really good, it's, wow, that gives you a real buzz and lifts your intensity. It lifts your vitality. And I think a lot of the food that we're eating isn't hasn't got that vitality. You've just, you're just going through the throes of eating as a filler but not seeking out uh, nutrition and vitality from the, from the food. So, yeah, so I've got to be able to do that and help, help. That's where I think my role will be down. And that'll be a challenge. It seems to be that there is some of the next generation interested, but it's got to get a bit of momentum out there for people to start asking rather than me telling they got to ask to say, Kim, what are you doing? I think that's fascinating. And it might come from their wives to say, hey, you can't keep farming with all that chemical. I think that the women are going to uh, lead this charge because they're more nurturing and can put a lot more life into the food that we eat. Can't help um, resist a pun here, uh, Kim, that life should be a bowl of cherries, particularly if they're biodynamically... <laughs> biodynamically grown cherries but you know seriously yeah. you're pointing to yeah. the the quality of food and we know from research background research that the quality of you know and the nutrient level of many commercially grown foods <clears throat> has has dropped over the last 30 or 40 years i, I think there's there's research mm. research on that milk it, yeah milk so do it too that's supposed to be all calcium and that's dropped immensely yeah. So maybe the shift will be when they wake up, a lot of our health issues are directly related to our food and how we've grown it. And that revolution's going to come. Rather than can chemical, it'll be replaced by demand for healthy food. And, and you're bringing that message, uh, you know, in terms of your future-oriented view, like you, you as a sort of senior now practitioner of biodynamic and, uh, you know, other approaches to regenerative farming there, you're bringing this message and you'll increasingly bring it, you want to bring it to a, a new audience. I know that you've got uh, in your in the actual written text profile that accompanies that this uh, podcast series, you've got 13 top tips um for advice for for potential growers in that uh, text um resource and we'll put a link to that in the show notes but as we come up to the end the very end of this fantastic interview kim um just again perhaps chunk, chunking down here and just consolidating what has been a superbly rich interview do you have a short take-home message for listeners you, you probably have given us all half a dozen uh, take-home messages already but just uh, another another option another, another opportunity for you a short take-home message to um, summarize some of the stuff you've been talking today or just uh, an important idea you you particularly want the audience to take away yes yeah, so that's an interesting one in a short nutshell you just do it get the preps on learn about them later That'll start to come. Uh, the BAA have got a great resource manual. They, ha they take questions. They do workshops. That's a great way of 
getting into the family. Uh, if you know someone that's doing biodynamics, uh, chat to them. Uh, but don't get bogged down on trying to understand it all at the start. Just just get started. I think one of the famous Sanchu um, companies logos, just do it. Just do it, and the rest will start to follow as you get that energy buzzing happening out there in, in nature. And uh, don't too, don't get too worried about what your neighbours and the, the naysayers say. Just if you want to do it, it'll come from your heart and just, just go and do it and enjoy your journey. And I think going back to you know, an idea that you came up with earlier on, that idea of the black box, you know, we don't need to know the specific detailed mechanics of what goes on inside the box as long as it's producing, you know, a beneficial outcome, whether that be, you know, a digital device, a car engine or some, or frankly, biodynamic practice. I mean, these processes and approaches like the preparations uh, as a method have been well proven. You've, you've seen the results, as has other guests in, in the series. So get on with it. Um, as I said before, we're going to attach show notes to this episode. Some of those resources you mentioned, uh, for instance, the manual by Biodynamics Agriculture Australia, we'll put a link to that. But one final opportunity, Kim, any other sources we're going to link to those um, early readings that you actually mentioned, some of the, some stuff on the da- dowsing techniques that you, you mentioned there, which are on YouTube. Any final comments about advice, uh, sources of information, or I, I think you've it's pretty much a smorgasbord of what you've covered already, but it's about you, not you, Andrew. It's about <laughs> me. <laughs> it's about the participant. It's their journey. Uh, you have to love and support yourself. And I've probably been very guilty of, you know, wanting the pat on the back or the support from others, and and yet I've probably missed the key one about loving and supporting myself and for me to grow to allow everything else to grow you know i don't want to sound that as too heavy or or the old sayings but you know i've got to be strong and knowledgeable to help others both my family and me help me then i can help my family if you're on the airplane you know she's all she's coming down and they drop the air bag things down Help yourself first before you help others. So we've got to start doing that. Get ourselves in a good place to help others and go with that. So, yeah, not look for not look for acknowledgement or support from others, but start with yourself. Start developing yourself. And you can do a lot of reading on the subject uh, as well or seek out the people. And the lady that helps me with... Uh, she was working on natural intelligent farming, Jane Slattery. She's been fantastic in the recent months. Now that I've got to that point in my journey, um, probably should have started just 20 years ago. But uh, better late than never. So there's good people out there. You you will find them when you're ready. Asking me these questions, you've helped, helped me pull out stuff that's either been buried or uh, been oblivious to. Um, so thank you for asking the right question at the right time. Thanks, mate. Well, all I can say, Kim, is if you've been oblivious, then I, I really feel sorry for for a lot of other people because you you strike me as one of the most um, enlightened and self reflective people I've talked to for a long time. But you know, just 
again, that fantastic last um, comment from you, improve the soil, improve the land, improve the quality of food, but also don't forget about the potential for improving yourself as a farmer, as a human being. I mean, it's just, I mean, that is a, a refreshing, radical difference, I, I would humbly suggest, to the message that you'll probably get from a lot of conventional agricultural practice. And it's just, just been brilliant to hear it because we need a lot more of it. But listen, Kim, I think as we now come to the end of this great interview, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. I know for a fact you've given our audience many thought-provoking ideas which will help them in their next steps toward learning more about biodynamics or building an actual practice based on the fascinating and more environmentally protective methods of growing that you've been describing in this interview. Your story today, along with the other guests in this series, has helped illustrate how biodynamics is important in its ability to regenerate the biological health of soil, supercharge organic growing, restore biodiversity, and work in harmony with Mother Nature, as well as producing excellent quality crops um, and, and, um, and produce to consume. And so, Kim, regrettably, it's time to say goodbye. On behalf of both the podcast production and support organisations that made this podcast possible, that is Householders' Options to Protect the Environment, Hope Incorporated Australia, and Biodynamic Agriculture Australia Limited. I want to thank you so very much for our conversation today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an episode in the podcast series Biodynamic Farmers and Gardeners in Australia. The series was produced by Householders' Options to Protect the Environment, Hope Incorporated Australia, with the generous funding support of Biodynamic Agriculture Australia Limited. It has been a pleasure to help raise awareness of some of the environmentally protective values of biodynamic growing practice in its ability to regenerate the biological health of soil, supercharge organic growing, restore biodiversity and work in harmony with Mother Nature. Please consult the episode show notes for possible follow-up material on topics discussed in interview and any relevant contact details should you wish to respond to anything you have heard. And if you enjoyed the episode, please consider promoting it across your networks and giving it a positive rating in your preferred podcast app. You can also give us feedback via the short five-minute online survey using the link also available in the show notes. My name is Andrew Nicholson, producer of the series, and thank you for listening.